nobody tells you what to do, nobody tells you how to be, and nobody tells you it's not your fault. And did you feel as though it was your fault? I think I did on a certain level because there was always the case of what have I done now that's caused this. And obviously, certainly until I was into my 20s, maybe I was sort of starting to get a sense of it in my late teens, but at no point did I understand that she wasn't bad, she was just ill. Welcome to series five of the How To Be Sad podcast with me, Helen Russell. This is a show about how getting sad and learning to embrace all of our emotions could be the key to a happier life. And each week I'll be joined by a special guest sharing their own experiences of how to be sad well. My guest today began performing at Oxford with Stuart Lee and Richard Herring. She trained as a solicitor before moving into writing, presenting, acting, stand-up and pretty much everything. She's won a Chortle Award, she was fun editor at Tatler, celebrity Masterchef champion and, most impressively, runner-up at the World Conquer Championship. A true polymath described as TV's Swiss Army knife, Emma Kennedy is also the author of a remarkable new book, Letters from Brenda. A painful, funny record of Emma's relationship with her complex, charismatic mum, Brenda, who died of breast cancer. Revisiting her mother's letters has allowed Emma to process a difficult childhood and the letters chart her mum's struggles with mental health, although she was never diagnosed in her lifetime. In this episode, we talk about mental health, though not any specific condition, as this is something the ending of Emma's book handles really carefully, so we didn't want to give it away here. It was a fascinating in-depth chat that I hope will strike a few chords. Emma and I both grew up as only daughters, found school a refuge, and here we talk about generational trauma, mental health, stigma, acts of service, and how to be sad well, including the power of dogs, Lego, and the Liza Minnellium Falcon. I hope you enjoy. Perhaps you could tell me about your mum growing up. Yeah, okay. So I had a combination of a wonderful childhood and a terrible childhood. And it was a constant balancing act between whatever version of Brenda was getting up in the morning. And if it was good Brenda, then it would I would have wonderful adventures. I would be taken off to Bieber in London. I would be taken to see Shakespeare plays. I would be taken to see musicals like Hair, where I was the only child in the audience. I'd be taken to dinner parties and, and have all, all manner of high times. If bad Brenda was getting up in the morning, then it was a question of sort of turning myself into the smallest possible thing that I could be in order to not aggravate her or be noticed. And I didn't have any coping mechanisms at all for dealing with a mother who had a undiagnosed mental illness when I was a child. I didn't understand that that's what it was. I just thought she was a bad and complicated person who made me feel scared. But this is something I, I kind of realised only when writing the book is that there are lots of mechanisms now in place to help people with mental illness. But there's virtually nothing in terms of if you are a child and you are growing up with someone with a mental illness. Nobody tells you what to do. Nobody tells you how to be and nobody tells you it's not your fault. And did you feel as though it was your fault? I think I did on a certain level because there was always the case of what have I done now that's caused this. And obviously, certainly until I was into my 20s, maybe I was sort of starting to get a sense of it in my late teens. But at no point did I understand that she wasn't bad. She was just ill. And, and when I made that decision much later in life, that really sort of helped in my relationship with her because I, I had a very complicated relationship with her, I think, because I resented the, the atmosphere that she constantly created. It, it was, a, you know, she, she was very good at, at ruining big days. 
in what respect making them about her? Yeah, or she would, just... she would just drama, and she was even still doing it on my fortieth birthday. You know, she arrived at the party and instantly had a blazing row for, for for no reason. So that that's what she would do, and she would embarrass me and and think nothing of of making a scene in in front of other people. And I didn't know how to cope with it. And for a long, a long, certainly out, out when I was out of the other side of childhood, because obviously when you're a childhood, you're trapped. You know, you, you are a hostage to, to fortune and you just have to somehow get through it. And I think I got through it by spending most as, as, as many hours as I possibly could not in the house. And and often away. So I suppose part of my experience as a child was that it made me incredibly independent. I resonated with stories of playing Cluedo yes. by yourself. And yeah, swing ball and scruple scramble, only child's best friend. Yes. So school was like a refuge for you. And then again, school was an absolute refuge. And I loved being at school. I absolutely adored being at school. And it was interesting now that I... I can now see that I that that I was drawn towards older girls and teachers because I was clearly looking for um a, like a maternal figures in my life because I didn't have one. My my mother was sort of the exact opposite of the the stereotype of what a mother is. And even though weirdly, I can look back now and think that she was the most nurturing influence in my life in terms of you know she taught me to read she really pushed me not not in a sort of a mumzilla way but but just really sort of instilled in me that that anything I was ever going to achieve in life I had to make happen and she gave me my work ethic and all of these things so the person I am today is entirely because of her but I can vividly remember going to other friends' houses and just loving the fact that there was calm. Their mums were just nice and kind <laughs> and uncomplicated. And <laughs> it was like, wow, this is amazing. And you mentioned, um, you know, on a, on a good Brenda day, you might get taken to Bieber or taken to see shows. Yeah. No, she was she was thrilling. She was a, she was a thrilling individual. It was like being around a wild horse. Wow, that's what she was like. You you describe beautifully how life, and we'll perhaps we'll get onto it. The, the struggles that she had growing up and the, and the generational trauma. But nineteen seventy one, Jermaine Greer's female unit comes out, and suddenly it's as though I think you say feminism fitted her like a velvet glove. This idea that oh yeah, of course it's a social history as well, isn't it? So many women of that generation were frustrated in many ways yeah there's there's no doubt about it I ruined her life and 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 I really do believe that but I'm okay with it because I get it I get it because in 1967 when I was born you know she'd only been married a matter of months and she was absolutely hell-bent on having a proper career and back in 1967 if you got pregnant that was it. That was the end. That was the end of you. And you would be either just, that's it, at home, but no employer was going to take you on full time. Absolutely not a chance. So the best she was going to do from there on in would be a bit of part-time teaching and that was it for her. And I can understand why she would resent that, you know, because her big thing was was about getting out of the situation that she was in. And it's fascinating to me that that she went through a period in her late teens where she started calling herself Becky rather than Brenda. And it was because she was obsessed with Becky Sharp from Vanity Fair, who is an interesting character in and of herself. And you can have one of two views of Becky Sharp, that she's either a dreadful schemer who is ruthless or... She's the poor kid who knows precisely what needs to be done in order to get herself out of her situation and to better her life. And I think my mother really, I mean, she clearly did. She she so identified with that, that she started calling herself Becky. And so she had pulled herself out of wretched circumstances and had got herself to a point where she was looking at a really 
good and decent career for a woman as a teacher. And then I come along and I get, you know, she gets pregnant and that's it, it's over. And interestingly, later on in life, literally from the time I was about seven, from the earliest moment I can really remember where I understood what she was saying to me, she would say to me, don't have children, it'll ruin your life. And she would actually say that to me when I'm her child. Don't have children, it will ruin your life. How did you react to that at that time? I mean, I think there was a big part of me, certainly during my childhood, where I just thought she doesn't like me. That must have been very difficult. Well, I don't really know because it was my normal. So it's like I don't think of it as difficult because it was just like just to accept that that, that's what this is. And you mentioned the circumstances that your mum grew up in. Can you talk a little more about her childhood? Yes. So she was happy until the age of seven. And then two things happened. Her sister came along late in life and then her father abandoned them. And her mother was, my grandmother was, was Irish And there were huge social uh, disadvantages to being Irish or from an Irish family at that point in history. The IRA was starting to really sort of take off in mainland Britain and do terrible things. And my grandmother would pretend that she wasn't Irish. She would pretend she was Welsh. But this was at a time when you would see signs up on shops and houses or whatever that said uh, no blacks no dogs no Irish the Irish came at the bottom of that pile and it was also very shameful to have to come from a, a, a broken home at that time in the 50s and also the added problem was that my grandmother was Catholic and wouldn't grant my grandfather a divorce so there was all of that as well but the shame came from my grandmother. She sort of instilled in my mother, especially, and her sister, that no one was to know your business. But reading reading letters from Brenda, there is sympathy for each one of these, these, these women. I mm. mean, you can sort of see completely where your grandmother had come from and she just wanted to create a good life for her daughters and suddenly in financially far reduced circumstances. And your your mother took the birth of a baby sister quite seriously didn't she I mean yes she did yes she tried to kill herself yeah she she tried to kill herself she threw herself from an upstairs window and I've now seen the house where she she did that and she would have dropped straight onto concrete but it was it by some miracle she didn't even break a bone and she always said to me afterwards that that her guardian angel was carrying her down that day but she found it funny. She would always tell that story as if it was really amusing that she tried to commit suicide when she was 11. You, you mentioned the once a Catholic, always a Catholic. And I was also raised Catholic. And yes, it's a similar thing is that if you can laugh about it, that's, you can laugh about it. If you can forget yeah. it's happening and perhaps eat some cake instead, then you do that. Mm. And there's no other option. No, there's no other option. I think this is the thing as well. It's, it, well, something happened at, at, right at the end of the book, which I won't ruin for people, but it's sort of by whatever, you know, by, by luck or whatever, it just clicked something into place. And I was basically told that she had been misunderstood during her lifetime and that there were problems in childhood that if they had been sorted out, then she would have had a very different life. And I fundamentally believe that that all of Brenda's problems began in childhood. And how does that make you feel? I mean, profoundly sad it is. Sorry, sorry for her. Really sad, really frustrated that she didn't have the life that that she could have had, that she lived a life that was absolutely riven with paranoia, that must have been exhausting for her. And also for us that... You know, we didn't do anything about it, but it's it's an interesting when you are living with someone or around someone who has got who is very volatile. It's like Stockholm syndrome. You just don't want to spark off another episode because the episodes are so bad and so disruptive and so upsetting. So you try everything to avoid them. And if at any point we had said to her, Mum, I think 
you've got a mental illness and we need to take you to a doctor, all Mary Hell would have broken loose. And so no one ever did it. Which is completely understandable, but no less tragic. It's a vicious, it's a vicious circle. It's a horrible, vicious circle. And you talk about how she experienced postnatal depression uh, when, when you were born because her mother was, was dying and, and the menopause was challenging again because nobody really spoke about it in those days. I wonder, it, it was very striking when you talk about, you have done multiple things in your amazing career, but when you trained to be a lawyer, there was something that she felt as though her job was done, that, that she had arrived somehow. And, yeah, yeah. yeah I, th- I think that there definitely was a sense that I was going to have the career... I was going to be the career woman that that she could have been. And the fact that, you know, for her coming from her background, that she had a daughter who had gone to Oxford and was now going to be a lawyer was just beyond all her wildest imaginings. And and it was it was it was also a real sort of sticking two fingers up at her father and look, look what we've managed to do even though you did what you did. There was definitely a sense of that. And I I definitely felt the weight of I need to do something that will make her proud. I was very, I was very fixated on her getting her approval. And what about your dad? I mean, he's just a darling. He's just a sweet, uncomplicated man. He is the exact opposite of my mum. I'm I'm sort of astonished that they were a fit, but I can also see how they were a perfect fit because no one else would have put up with her. Absolutely nobody else. And he did, and he did because he loved her and he loved, but more importantly, he loved me because I've asked him repeatedly about this, about why he stayed with her. And he always says, because of you. You know, he's just a good man. That's who my dad is. That's a lot of pressure for you, though, feeling as though you're the glue that kept them together. Well, it's a weird thing. Again, the three of us, we were like the Borg. We were symbiotic. We were one symbiotic unit. And if one of us was down, then everyone was down. If, If one of us was up, all of us were up. It's a weird and strange thing, but it I don't know how I, I, w- I still would have been de- if they'd got divorced, I would have been devastated, even though I can see with my adult's eyes that I have no understanding of how they stayed together, especially after she had two affairs. I just don't get it. <laughs> and she had an affair with a, a much younger man, didn't she as well? Yes, oh, twice. I mean, she was an absolute terror. I mean, honestly, Brenda, really? But then, you know, you look at pictures of her. I don't know if you've had a copy of the book with photos. No, I haven't seen the photos. Okay, I mean, she was absolute stunner. She looks like she was like a cross between Julie Christie and and Audrey Hepburn. Oh, my goodness. To look at when she was in her sort of 20s and 30s. And, of course, I look like my father, which is really annoying. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, you know, she, she was a highly sexualized woman and this was part of the the whole Jermaine Greer thing that that the whole the whole message of female eunuch was that it was women's duty to go out and enjoy sex and the 70s was a really weird decade in which if you weren't having an affair there was something wrong with you (laughs) and and but but also there was the attitude that if you were having an affair, your partner had to put up with it. I like the the time when she says, "I can't possibly pick up a pan; my womb will fall out." Yes, <laughs> I can't possibly pick up a pan; my womb will drop out. Yes, <laughs> so it was everything had to everything was just on her terms, and it was I'm going to do this, and if you don't like it, that's not my problem. That was the attitude. So yeah, she had an affair with with twice with two much younger men and they I mean certainly the 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 first one he was properly properly in love with her and wanted her to leave my father for him and interestingly she had no interest in doing that so that she was devoted to your father in her way I think they were best friends I think that's what went on there 
I don't necessarily think that my father was the love of her life. I think, I think quite possibly the the guy that she had the the first affair with was. But in my dad, she knew that she had someone who was steadfast, and put up with her, and looked after her because he really did look after her. And I think that in the end was what kept her there. That's interesting, and. She she clearly what's what's so clear from throughout the book and the, the way you've talked about her before she had such love for you she wrote seventy five oh, yeah. letters I mean that's yes that's unusual do you do you feel like it's unusual or feels it from my end no I well what what's interesting to me is that she she took them back because I hadn't I'd read some of them but not all of them so some of them were letters that I had never read but some of them were letters that I had read and could remember receiving but you know this was a long 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 time ago so I had completely forgotten about them but what was fascinating to me (laughs) is that she had found them and taken them back so that they were hers again. So where had she found them and and she'd taken some back that she hadn't even sent? I think well I think she must have just found them in a in in a box I mean she I imagine what happened was that she was in my flat looking after my dog one day or one weekend because she had a key and I imagine she had was having a good route around because that's exactly what she would have done and I think she found them and she just took them home just different rules I mean I don't (laughs) know that that's what happened but I think that that is what happened but when I think about well why would she have done that and I think there's two things that I can come up with. Number one was that I think secretly she would have loved to have been a writer. She she clearly could have been a writer. And I think she had the skills to do it. And she was a great storyteller. But again, she was that generation that didn't have the opportunities or, or even it would even cross her mind that someone like her could be a novelist or a screenwriter. So it was like taking back her work Mm. so that she could, you know, reread it and and all of those things. The link between humour and and tragedy is always fascinating. I'm sure you've read Robin Ince's book about, you know, the tears of a clown. And do you go by this idea of not maybe not quite the tortured genius, but that with brilliance has to come this this darkness or, or this pain somewhere? I think for my mother part of it is that she did not have a proper outlet for her talents you know she was she was that generation of thwarted women whose expectations were set at at nothing and then met you know Mm -hmm. it's like you yeah you are poor you are not going to go to university as soon as you have a child you are going to your life's over that was it you know, that was that, that no one was allowed to have dreams or hopes or aspirations. But my mother did have dreams and hopes and aspirations. And I think that it, it was obviously a, a constant battle for her between those hopes and those dreams and those aspirations and what she could actually achieve given her circumstances. And she took great pride in your achievements when you got into Oxford. It's a huge deal. So was there ever any, any kind of competitiveness or, or envy or she was just delighted? No, that's what interests me. I never got a sense that she was envious. She just, if I triumphed, she triumphed. I think that's what was going on with her, that, that if I achieved something it was an extension of her. So it was almost as if she didn't see me as my own person. I was just an extension of her and that's how she could tolerate me. Or the therapy. <laughs> it's, a bit, it's a bit like that. I, I genuinely think she didn't like me until I started to come good. And that was basically from the moment I... When I got into Oxford, it was like, okay, now I'm interested in you. And... Side note, but you you met um, Richard Herring and, and Stuart Lee early on in, in Oxford, and I was very amused by your description of how erudite Stuart Lee was and a sort of curious sense of intellect. And <laughs> Richard Herring liked jacket potatoes. <laughs> Good. I, I mean, obviously that that's and obviously that is a joke, uh, but yeah, but yeah, but we, we, I I absolutely love Richard Herring. 
he's he's one of my dearest dearest pals um and i'm very glad i've got him in my life but he does love jacket potatoes he does talk about potatoes quite he a lot. loves them. um and i was very interested then so you know you've done good you've gone to oxford you you train as a lawyer and by all accounts you you do some amazing work as a lawyer you got the law changed on on you helped to get the law changed in terms of battered women being able to claim self-defense is that is that right yes we were we were um uh we were acting for a client who had was in jail for murdering her husband and she'd gone down for murder and at that point you couldn't uh claim manslaughter if you if you were claiming manslaughter it had to be like for like so if someone was coming at you with a fist you could only respond with a fist um, you couldn't respond with a knife. There was a slight complication with that case as well because her husband, her husband had had been beating her for twenty plus years, and she had started putting Valium in his dinner to try and calm him down. And because there was Valium in his system that evening when he attacked her, and and it was in the kitchen, and she grabbed a knife and stabbed him to stop him. You know, it was manslaughter, it wasn't murder, but because she was putting, she put Valium in his dinner, they said that that was the, the sufficient mens rea to prove that it was murder. So we worked on her appeal and we got it reduced from murder to manslaughter and, and now the rules on manslaughter have shifted. That's amazing. And, and I know that you didn't perhaps enjoy being a lawyer, but do you feel a, a huge sense of pride for having been a part of that? I sort of did. I enjoyed being a litigator. I mean, that that bit was fun. There's there's no doubt about that. And there was real satisfaction in helping people solve their problems. It's just that my creative what if was just nagging away at the back of my brain and wouldn't go away. And it's not a question. It wasn't a question of, uh, you know, am I good at this or am I good at that it was a question of writing is the thing that I probably should be doing rather than being a lawyer and it sort of boiled down to that really I wasn't wholly fulfilled and your mum was not delighted when you oh told her you God, were it, was, <laughs> it was like she came down with a Victorian illness I don't think she spoke to me for three six months she literally just, no, that's it, I'm done with you, I'm not interested in you at all. And it was really palpable. She's so hurtful. I mean, again, this, this is my normal. I lived my entire life just feeling grateful if she was nice to me on any, on any given day. That's the mindset you're in when you are around someone who is unpredictable and, and violent is that if they throw this is why it always astonishes me when people when people say about battered women they go why didn't they leave you can't it's the the psychology of it is so entrenched mm. and it's all about oh gosh are they and you're grateful for the days they're nice to you think oh brilliant aren't you wonderful you've just you've been nice to me I mean, it's really sick but <laughs> But but this is where you're at. It's Stockholm syndrome, as I keep saying. That that is what you're experiencing. And I think I rem remember my parents hadn't spoken to me in months, and I picked up the phone and and rang them. And my dad picked up the phone and went, "Oh, hello," as if he'd forgotten who I was. Oh and it was like, "Oh God, this is awful. <laughs> this is awful." so tiring you describe beautifully how we we can also be our most exhausted with family members possibly because we've been doing it forever that it's just that sort of oh here we go again oh brace yourself type feeling yeah well it, it was it was was always like that with my mum anyway because I can still feel the relief that would shoot through me if she came through the door and she was in a good mood and you would always know if she was in a good mood because they'd open the door and my mum would go, cooey, cooey. And that meant I'm going to have a good day. Oh and if goodness. and if the door opened and there was there was not that noise, it was, oh, God, here we go. And it would be, here we go. And it would be relentless. And for all of her Jermaine Greer reading, um, open-mindedness, 
you were still worried about her feelings about your sexuality, weren't you, for many years? That something she said when you were younger. Well, when I was, when I was again, when I was, I must have been seven or eight, and I was in the front garden with a friend of mine, and it was a very hot day, and we were doing that thing, you know, where you play that game where you spell out words on on each other's back, and you've just got to work out what the word is. Nothing untoward or or wrong or anything and my mother called me into the house and from an upstairs window and I went up to went up to her and she was lying in bed with the curtains drawn as if like the world had ended and she just lay on the bed and just said if you are a lesbian I will kill myself and I didn't even know what a lesbian was but it again it was like that was rammed into me. I think, because of, because later on in life, she had, she couldn't get enough homosexuals in her life. She, homosexual gentlemen, absolutely loved my mother. She was like, you know, the gay icon type woman. And both my cousins, Ben and Tom, uh, also turned out to be gay. Literally every single every single offspring in this branch of the family uh, turned out to be gay. And she couldn't have loved them more. But I think what it screws down to again is she carried a lot of shame in her life, certainly through childhood, certainly into her 20s. And she didn't want a child that was number one, going to bring her more shame. And number two, that I was going to experience shame or difficulty in my life. But even though it felt tricky and difficult, she embraced every single partner I ever had to the point of two of them she absolutely adored. And, you know, we got there in the end, as I say in the book. It's good. It's good. I like that she accused um, is it Heston Blumenthal of, of poisoning yes, Superbugs. Yes. <laughs> Acquitted. No, completely yes. unfounded. Yes, completely untrue. Yeah. Completely untrue. But yes, she, she loved any, anything that might have been even a whisper of gossip. It's the drama. She again. loved a gossip. But it's the drama. She just, she loved drama. She was addicted to it. It gave her energy. And she writes dialogue beautifully in her letters. I mean, yeah, certainly you can see why the idea of wanting it as her legacy, as a sort of uh, a compendium of, of her work. It's, you've done a, a massive, well, I guess like an honour. It, it, do you think she'd be pleased with the way the book's turned out? Oh God, it, I mean, this, honestly, this is a question I keep asking myself. And the small child in me that we carry with us is just riven with fear and horror that she would read this book and be furious with me about it because, you know, obviously I, I've told all her secrets and there is a big part of me that just is like, oh, God, she would just be so furious. And yet there's another part of me that would think, no, she would be astonished that her letters are part of the are the backbone of a book and that she is the star of a book and it is I well I think it is it it's a really warm loving and understanding book that is just trying to get to the bottom of why she was so unwell I really wish I could have a conversation with her and it's interesting is that why do I want to do that it's because I I still want her approval well, considering you write about how when The Tent, The Bucket and Me came out that became The Kennedys on TV, yep. she, uh, didn't she stand near the book in Waterstones and get ready? It's me in here. So I think she'd have been delighted. Yeah, she'd have go and she would stand next to it. And, and if anyone picked it up, she'd go, hello, I'm Brenda from The Tent, The Bucket and Me. Would you like me to sign that? So and thinking of uh, the brilliant The Kennedys um, and it, it, it came out you mentioned your mother was was diagnosed with breast cancer and she didn't go for chemotherapy the first time but then the and it came back mm. and it was it was very painful you you write incredibly movingly about how you 
you suddenly could almost see the case for euthanasia that it just oh was too terrible to 100 percent. the last two weeks of her life she didn't have to go through that no way how did you and your father cope pretty badly really i mean i was just i just was just leaking tears constantly it, I, it became a sort of superpower that i was able to have completely normal conversations with people while crying and uh, it was just really painful. She was the driving engine in our family, for for good or for bad. She was the fuel that that ran it. To see someone who was so vital be reduced to the husk that she was at the end, and she was in huge amounts of pain, which she didn't complain about. But she had lesions all over the front of her body that were that were ag that must have been agony for her, and she was consumed with 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 feeling sick all the time, and it was just it was just awful, just awful. I say in the book, it's certainly in the last week. If I if we'd been given the option to give her an injection, just like I'd done with my dog. I would have said yes. And she would have said yes. Yeah. And and then very soon afterwards, you were working on the TV pilot of the Kennedys whilst you're still mourning your mum. I mean, it's just... It was three weeks. Do you look back and wonder how you did it? It was like 10 days after we'd buried her. I don't know how I did it. I really don't know how I did it. And there was there was one day when, when Dad, I think, because I'd been with Dad the whole time and hadn't left him, and then obviously I had to leave him because we we were going off to be in filming, and he, he just wanted to be where I was. And he came to filming one day, and we were we were shooting a scene that was pretty much word for word exactly what had happened, you know, 40-odd years ago, with a scene with, with me as a child um, and my dad and my mum. We are all in a bathroom having a conversation about the fact that I've seen someone having an affair and how they're going to stop me blurting it out. And Dad was sitting next to me at the monitor and I looked at him and he looked like he was going to sneeze or something. And and I put a hand on him to say, no, and gestured, don't, not until the director said cut. And it wasn't a sneeze. He was He was breaking down and we had to stop filming and clear the room and he was in a terrible 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 state and really unhappy and upset and crying it's interesting isn't it that some somebody who was so controlling of every single especially for him more for him than for me she made his life an absolute misery for the last sort of 10 in in the 10 years before she got cancer the, the last 10 years where she had cancer things improved dramatically but I mean, she made his life an absolute misery. There's there's no doubt about that. And it was interesting that he was so devastated, as well as feeling complete relief. And, and it's been very interesting watching him since and the life he has subsequently made for himself, which couldn't be more removed from the life that he had before. Interesting. Yeah, mm. no spoilers, but I was delighted to hear that he has, he is building, yeah, a good life. For himself. Yeah, yeah, he is. Yeah, and and I wonder as well. You wrote the things we left unsaid, a novel which has many of these themes in it, and I wonder was was it only possible to do it in fiction first of all? I wonder what what made you go for that before doing the nonfiction. Yes, quite. Yes, quite. But I'm 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 I guess I am obsessed with mother daughter relationships. Because that's the thing that I've, that I still have questions about, and that the the dynamic of it is so interesting to me, especially when you haven't had what many would think of as a, a normal mother daughter relationship. I had the exact opposite of that, and so I'm sort of fascinated with that relationship and the damage it does. Both ways. That's the thing. It's like it's like people say, people always say, "Oh, your parents, you know, muck you up," but kids muck their parents up too. Do you think Philip Larkin should have done a, another one? 
yeah, should should have done one in reverse. Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel as though the the next generation can take that responsibility? Though, are we not all a product of our genes and our upbringing? Ah, uh, the old nature nurture. I don't know. It's 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 a tricky one. Am I the way I am now because of the way I was brought up? Yes, one hundred percent. But also, I think I I am a fundamentally, or am I a fundamentally different person from my mother? Mm. It's a good question. There are definite. I've definitely been conscious throughout my life of not being like Brenda. I would. I will often stop myself from losing my shit simply because that voice in the back of my head says, "Don't be like Brenda." And it's Brenda, not Mum. Yes, Brenda, not mum. It's fascinating. I very rarely called her mum, very rarely. I noticed in the book when you are frustrated or when the relationship is more strained, it's definitely Brenda. Yeah. (laughs) And other times it's your mother. Yeah. Mm. And I feel to give you full credit for the life that you have made for yourself as an autonomous adult, there seems to be lots of things that you do now to help you cope. We mentioned dogs. I just read before we started talking today that the office moods are raised by 30% by having a dog around and you know the importance of dogs and we talked about lego a little bit so tell me what helps you when things do feel tough now oh i just go and do lego there's no doubt about that it i I discovered i loved it completely by accident i have a very busy mind that goes at 100 miles an hour all the time and it's just constantly churning, 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 churning. It never stops. I don't have a moment of peace. And there was one Christmas, uh, my wife has a, a nephew, and he was uh, six at the time, I think, and he'd been given a small Lego set for Christmas. And he wanted someone to help him make it, and, and no one would, would, would do it with him. And so he came to me, sort of the last resort, and said, will you please help me make this? And I said, yes, of course I will. And I uh, started making it and something weird and magical happened that my brain just went to a very quiet place and just zenned out. And I finished making it. And then days later, after well, long after we'd gone home, I kept thinking about how I had felt when I was making that Lego. And I thought, well, you can't do Lego, I'm a grown up. <laughs> And then by chance, I saw someone, an adult, another author, uh, post a picture of a Lego Volkswagen that they'd just finished making. And I suddenly thought, oh, my God, it's okay to do Lego when you're a grown up. And so I thought, okay, I'm just I'm just going to get that set. I'm just going to get that set that, (laughs) that she has built and then we'll see how we go. And I got it, and it was the first Lego Volkswagen, the the, the camper van. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like a gateway drug for yes. for adults yeah. into Lego because the interior is so utterly beautiful and you can't actually believe that you're making something this incredible. And that was the start of it. And then I sort of did a couple more things, but the thing that really kicked it off was I was given the Ghostbuster Firehouse uh, set for my birthday and I started posting little sort of 20-second films of what I'd, what I'd of each bag that I had built and somebody on Twitter, and then posting them on Twitter, and somebody on Twitter just said, I would watch you building Lego for an hour, uh, you know, an hour every day. I would just, just, I would please film them and I'll watch them. And so I thought, hmm, oh, maybe maybe I will. Maybe I'll start filming my Lego builds. And so that's when Relax With Bricks started, which is the the YouTube channel I do. And it's very niche because lots, pretty much all the Lego channels, you'll just see a speed build and a review. But I do each bag in full in real time. So it's like an hour every day. Of, uh, I, I put up a, a, a an hour's film every day and a, and a small little community has has arisen and, we, and it's got rules and regulations. We've gotten someone who adjudicates on things that have gone wrong. Oh my there goodness. are pa- there are punishments. We've got we've got an Apple Wackatraz 
it's yeah it's a very convoluted universe now wow is it the sound as well or just visual Oh no! It's I talk all the way, all the way through it because there's there we have a thing called club business, so um the the comments on the previous day's filled uh, film will be read out and discussed in in full. So it's like a full, a full and inclusive discussion about any given bag of Lego, which which if you had said this to me was going to happen three years ago, I would have said oh, you're out of your tiny minds. <laughs> And you have a special shed, is that right? Yes, got a Lego shed. It's full on. <laughs> well, I know many people will be delighted, delighted to hear it. Sounds like sort of like ASMR plus mindfulness, all in a sort of nice build. Yes, it's like it's well, only people of a certain age will will know this reference, but it's sort of like Michael Benteen's Potty Time meets ASMR. That's what it is. Okay, that's exactly what it is. Okay, I'll put a link in the show notes. Well, find this. This is good. Okay, and how is is it? Liza Millen. Liza Millennium Falcon. Yes. How's it going? I built. I built. It's it's it proceeds. It's about three quarters done. I have a rule that I will not build a Star Wars set because they're just grey. So instead of doing the Death Star, I've done the Death Spa which is my greatest work to date that there's there's a whole there's a whole section of where C3PO is administering botox Lovely. while a stormtrooper is in a hot tub behind him well that would help him relax useful yes emperor palpatine is is on the decks on a dis, doing on the disco floor <laughs> you know it's it's all good and you'll be very pleased to know that i have finally put in a toilet and a shower into because uh, that has always bothered Good. me uh whenever watching anything about to do with the death stars that you never saw a toilet ever and the scatological looms large in letters from brenda as well i would like yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, on the top layer of the of of the death spa there is the uh, hr department Oh, good, good, because it's important to look after everybody these days. Yes, this exactly. And um, I would like to say that you also you're quite an activist. I was interested, parish councillor. Yeah, right? and you stood for MP. I'm a parish councillor. Yes. Is this sort of trying to make a difference to the things that well, aren't right? And do you know what it is? It uh, I moved to a very uh, to a village about six ooh, six years six or seven years ago now, and. And I'd lived in London for about 35 years, you know, never thought I would leave London. And then I did. And then I was immediately furious that I hadn't done it 10 years sooner. And when I was in London, obviously, I had like a really vibrant social life and, and all of that. And then when you, when you move to somewhere else, it's about just finding your community and, and being involved in your community and it sort of began when, during lockdown, really, when I was asked if I would help run a thing called Chobham Response. The village I live in is called Chobham, we're in Surrey. And so on a, on a daily basis throughout the pandemic, I was organising prescriptions being picked up for people or f- food being being got for people, food deliveries or or food bank boxes for people. So, you know, for anyone who... Who really couldn't leave their house? We was we were sorting that out for them, and then after that, when that finished, because so I do I I help out the Liberal Democrats in in this constituency because they're the only people who have got any realistic prospect of beating the incumbent, Mr. Michael Gove, and they asked me if I would stand for parish council because there were two. Uh, two vacancies had come up so I said yes why not and it's interesting I was talking to um, Jess Phillips about this the other day about how when you start doing things for your community because it's not a paid role but it, it is full on I'm quite astonished actually how much a parish council actually have to do but it is loads and it's given certainly given me an, a newfound respect for for what MPs have to do. Good grief! I mean, the amount I have to do, and it's just for one village. It's just incredible, but it's really rewarding. And I've obviously got something in me, and I think this probably goes back to being a lawyer days. That there's really there's something really satisfying about solving problems for people, 
and trying to put right things that are wrong. I think that that runs through me like if if I was a, a stick of Blackpool rock. That would be the thing that runs through me. The thing I cannot bear is when things are either not fair or they're wrong. That's um one of the major sort of things that I, the only universal really that I found in terms of how to be sad well is that when we're sad, when we do things for other people, you're sort of helping. If you're sad and you just sort yourself out with all of the, you know, if you go to the death spa, for example, and have all your massages and, and get zen, then you might feel better, but you're not going to feel really better. It's only by doing those acts of service. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's funny. You know what? The, the, the one thing that has made me the most happy probably in the last six months is that I finally got the council enforcement team to remove a shipping container Good. <laughs> that's at the back of that's at the back of some residents' properties and has been was left there by a developer five years ago. And it's like, yeah, do you know what I'm I'm sort of realised that I and I am like my mum in this, in, in that I'm like a dog with a bone when it comes to no, this is wrong and I'm not gonna stop until it's until it's put right. I've definitely, definitely got that from her. But that's brilliant. I think the more of us can shake off any sort of apathy, if we don't think we can change things, then we're not going to do anything. And I always end by asking, knowing all that you know now, what advice would you give to your 21-year-old self about how to be sad well? I think I would say relax into it, because that, that's, that's always something I think that it's, it's the same with illness. If you're feeling ill, just Give into it immediately and you'll be out of it quicker. I'd probably not just want to write to myself. I would want to go and have a conversation with my mother. And I would want to say, you know what, it's all right to complain about yourself. Because she complained about everything except herself. And if she had complained about herself, she'd still be alive today. And what makes you think she'd have been alive today? She would have got the help. She would have got the help that she needed. And she wouldn't have, we wouldn't have had the the absolute nonsense surrounding her first cancer diagnosis where she basically refused all treatment because she was paranoid. So relaxing into it and just asking for the help that you need. Yeah, ask for the help you need, yeah. That is wonderful advice. Emma Kennedy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please do rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. It really helps other people find us and helps us to be able to make more podcasts. The book, How To Be Sad, is out now wherever you get your book delights. And I hope you are doing okay today.